History Emporium and Powers Podcast. This week I'm joined by medieval master Chris Riley, who will guide me through the lives. <laughs> Sorry, you can't introduce me like that. You okay. can't call me a medieval master. <laughs> this week I'm joined by medieval master Chris Riley, who will guide me through the lives of two important men in history, Henry II and Thomas Becket. This topic was chosen after I visited Canterbury Cathedral last week and stood at the exact spot that Beckett lost his life. Then I realised I know very little about the fallen man whose name is so familiar. Christopher, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Good. So when I uh, went to Canterbury Cathedral uh, and stood at this spot and I was like, oh... I actually know nothing about this chap. And then the first person I thought of was you. I was like, Chris is going to be on this. And he was. I text him. Here we are a few days later. Um, it's like a 24-hour turnaround, isn't it? Mm. It's, it's, I was ready. <laughs> it was like it was, it was saved in the bank just for this, this point. <laughs> um, so I'm going to jump straight in um, with... Uh, so, so what kind of time period are we in and what's going on in the world when these two men are around? Um, so we're in the middle of the uh, 12th century. Um, so Thomas was born either 1119, December 1119 or early 1120. Um, so he was, he was growing up in the middle of the, uh, the anarchy, which we, we covered quite a while ago mm. now when I was quite drunk. Um, <laughs> between um, Henry II's mother, Matilda, um, and his uncle, uh, King Stephen. And so it's a pretty, uh, pretty messy time in in England slash France uh, at the time. Yeah. Okay. So that's given us that's set the scene. Um, mm. Another thing that you may have come across. So, so there's two kind of pronunciations to his name, and I just mm. wanted to know which one was correct. So, is it Thomas Beckett? Or Thomas Abeckett? I mean, I would always go with Thomas Beckett. 
Um, I don't know where the A came from. I've seen it written and, and I've heard it, Thomas Beckett and things like that. I, I'm assuming it's, unless I'm wrong, obviously feel free somebody to correct me. Um, it sounds like a Shakespearean ad, like addition. Um, but other names, he was probably never called Thomas Beckett during his life. He was probably called Thomas of London, which is where he was born. Or after he became Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, Thomas of Canterbury. Because uh, it's, you know, like not many people have surnames. Pretty much nobody has surnames up until uh, 15th century, probably. So that's really so, interesting. So where, where would Beckett mm, have come from? So his, it, I, I, I want to say Beck Abbey in, in France, but I could be completely wrong there. Um, his, his parents were both of Norman stock. So his, his, his father was like a, a lower noble, a, lower, a lesser knight merchant. Like he wasn't, he's, obviously it's difficult to compare it to, to modern day because it's completely different. But let's say middle class. But I don't mean middle class as in like he was a teacher who drove a <laughs> you know, decent car on finance. Like he was, a, he was a merchant in London, fairly well off, was able to educate his, chi- his, his children. Um, but yeah, Thomas of London would have probably been his name. I quite like that. I might start calling myself, I don't know, Ollie of, actually, Ollie of Stevenage doesn't sound very good, does it? Yeah, I guess <laughs> Christopher of Bradford definitely does not have a ring to it. Bre- Bradford. Yeah, exactly, yeah. B-R-A-T-F-O-R-D. Love it. Bradford. Love it. <laughs> so um, we're not entirely sure of his, his name or the correct 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 pronunciation. Um, I would say Thomas Beckett. But mm, uh, like too. like yourself, I've I've seen it written, Thomas A. Beckett, um, maybe a bad translation somewhere along the line. Yeah, maybe I think obviously the whole ye old thing that gets added in, like ye old, isn't a thing. It's the old. Yeah, because it's um, a it's a different it's an it's, old letter, isn't yeah, it? For T H. It's a completely different word. Yeah, it just yeah. means the th- old. Yeah. It's, so it's probably just been one of those things that's changed um, changed over the time. I'm assuming the A may mean of. Um, oh, like, that makes sense, yeah. Like anybody that's got a D in front of their um, surname. So De Montfort. I have a, I, exactly, yeah, so of, of Montfort. Um, uh, at, if you're Welsh. Mac, if you're Scottish. O, if you're Irish. Um, obviously Scandinavian, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, Scandinavians have a son or like daughter um, and things like that. So like son of, daughter of. So it's it's probably Thomas of Beckett, i.e. of Gilbert Beckett, his father. That makes so much sense, especially if he's got Norman heritage as well. That would make yeah. complete yeah, sense. Exactly. Um, so I, on the very little that I know, um, I believe that he was... Uh, relatively self-made um mm. he was somewhat contradictory and difficult at times as a younger man and was not necessarily on the path of a strong faith so how did he rise up kind of through the ranks and how did he get to where he got to uh, it's a great question i mean he's he's one of those people that like if you watched a tv show you'd be like nah, it's not prob- that's not possible that because um, he, like I said, he started from relatively not nothing. He's not, he's referred to often 
by Henry II, quite famously, as the low-born clerk. Um, and he was low-born for the king, of course, but in terms of, you know, me and thee, he was, he was a fairly well-off son of a merchant. But, like I said, his, his parents were able to get him educated, which, surprisingly, it was more of a, a, more of a thing for lower families, lower-born families, to try and get their children educated, whereas more affluent families didn't really care for education. They didn't really see it as very important. But he was educated at Merton Priory, um, where he learned, you know, there was no PE or geography. It was <laughs> rhetoric and logic and theology and, and these very, you know, you can imagine people sat around in togas um, learning learning about Socrates and things like this. Where do, but, where um, do I sign up? Yeah, <laughs> sounds all right, doesn't it? Yeah. Sounds all right. I guess if it's, it's probably quite cold. Um, quite windy up your uh, up your toga, toga. But, uh, yeah <laughs> breezy breezy toga um, but yeah after that he he was able to travel to Europe to to study further um, he studied theology in Paris which was the kind of center of religious learning uh, religion and learning are pretty much the same thing at this point Mm. Um, and a point I'd like to make now is when we talk about the church, we are talking about a political entity that is a business that its product is religion rather than its um, only reason to exist, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's a completely different way of, of how we would probably, on a 21st century, look back to a very religiously controlled society eh, not necessarily the case yeah that's interesting actually because i was doing a bit of uh minimal research before i came <laughs> on here so i didn't sound completely stupid but um uh i wasn't aware of how uh how much of a uh, entity like rome was and the catholic church like it was almost like you said, like a business with mm. people that ran it and it was a powerhouse. Oh, absolutely. It was probably the biggest landowner in Europe, the church. Um, throughout periods of, of English history, the church owned more land than probably anybody but the king. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get to Henry VIII uh, yeah. later in this episode because he does get a mention, unfortunately. Anyway, uh, um, your favourite. <laughs> My favourite man in the world. Yes. Um, but yeah, the church was a, an incredibly powerful um, institution. Um, and it was a, a place where you could get good work. It was a good, solid place to work. Treat it in a way like the NHS. Um, it's always going to need people to work there. It will pay you a fair wage. I'm going to put that out there with very, very large asterisks or whatever yeah. the word is after it. Um, you would probably get do all right. You'd do all right with the church. And, and being a clerk or a clerk um, was a good job. Um, and that's where he ended up. Steady as well. Yeah, steady work, uh, very administrative. Um, you probably crossed yourself every now and again. But other than that, it was an admin role. Mm. Um, my, my maternal family name is actually Clark. Um, mm. So maybe, maybe at some point one of my ancestors and Big Tommy were like, Pals or something. Maybe you're related. Maybe. I would I would love that. I would I would love that. Um, yeah. so his father couldn't support him financially anymore, being a student. Um, we know what we they get up to. 
Um, And he he returned to become a clerk. And eventually, um, through being a very, very astute administrator, um, he seemed to, um, whatever he applied himself to, he seemed to be fairly good at. He ended up meeting the Archbishop of Canterbury, Theobald, who um, eventually um, was so impressed with what he saw in a yeah, a twenty a late twenties Thomas Beckett in um, in the late sort of eleven forties. Um, he basically said, "Henry, this is my guy Thomas. How about him for this vacant government position you've got, which was the Lord Chancellery, which is still to this day one of the highest positions in government." So we're talking Henry the Second, aren't we? We are Henry the Second. Yeah. So that is when they first met after um, the Archbishop took him under his wing mm. and kind of yeah. introduced him to Henry. Yes. Um, what was their initial relationship like? Very, very good. Um, very good, to be fair. Um, so for context, Henry II, um, essentially the victor of the anarchy. His mother had been fighting this war for 19 years against her cousin, Stephen, who had usurped the crown. Um, And he was seen as the uh, rightful heir to his grandfather, Henry I, the uh, last surviving child of um, William the Conqueror. Um, So he, him and Thomas became, for lack of a better word, just really good mates. They both really loved to hunt. They were both avid hawkers. They loved to play chess together. They were just two two pals, really. They 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 got on really really well. Um, were they a similar age? The end of the uh, yeah. So Thomas was a little bit older. Uh, he was about was a decade older than him. So okay. Henry's born in eleven thirty three. So just before the anarchy starts. Um, and I'll get onto this later. But his Henry's upbringing and and how he became Henry the second rather than, you know, Henry of Anjou, um, is very, very important when you look at the relationship later on. Okay. Um, but yeah, for the, first, um, for the first part of the relationship, they were, they were great friends. So uh, we've talked a little bit about what uh, Beckett was like as a, as a person. Um, mm. What was Henry like? So Hen- Henry is the is one of my absolute favourite characters from history. He's, he's so Game of Thrones, it's unbelievable. Um, he was notorious for his temper, um, like notoriously short-tempered, to the point where once, um, I'm jumping ahead here, but he was so mad at Thomas Beckett, and he was so utterly distraught by his, by his, his friend, this, low, this low-born clerk, that he started to eat the bedding, of his bed, I'd eat the straw from his bed um, <laughs> in like fits of rage. This guy would get like seriously pissed off. Um, it's kind of like the famous Plantagenet um, personality trait of this fiery aggression. Um, if anybody follows me on Instagram, they'll see, hopefully. Um, I did a post on the um, kind of origin story of the Plantagenets mm. and how they're apparently um, descendant from um, the devil. Uh, it's really, really cool. It's a really, really one of my favourite stories. Um, it's completely made up, but uh, if you haven't, I do recommend you checking it out at Chris Riley History. Uh, <laughs> I, I wondered how long it was going to take. <laughs> I'm, I do not plug unless told to plug, um, usually. You. But, um... <laughs> plug away. 
Quack away. But uh, no, Henry was um, Henry was notoriously um, aggressive. Let's say he was a proud military man that never really knew loss either. He'd never known he'd never known um, him not get his, essentially in his own way. Mm. He was made um, Duke of Normandy in eleven fifty. So what's that? Twenty four. Twenty. And an age that's very young. I'm so bad at math. <laughs> I think it's history or maths. I don't know if anybody else thinks that. You're one or the other. Yes. Um, yes. But uh, yes, yeah, so he was made Duke of Normandy as a you know a twenty-something-year-old, and he was basically his mum went, "I'm too tired and old for this shit now. Go and have a go at getting England," and he did. I'm very much making that easier than it was. Um, but he carried this arrogance with him, um, in a way, quite rightly. You know, He was the son of a count, Geoffrey of Anjou, who was never really supposed to do much. Um, became king of England, had his best mate as his chancellor. He was doing a wicked job of sorting him out financially. Like The, the, the kingdom was doing well. Um, war with France, intermittently, as always, was going all right. Um, financially, like I said, they were very stable. But the one thorn in Henry's side was the church. Um, you mentioned before about the power of the papacy and the power of Rome, and mm. that's something that Henry personally really did not like. Um, not to get too academic, but the Gregorian reforms of the 12th century, that's a lovely sentence to say, mm. um, were very, very, very much about um, taking power away from local church and making it big church you know, from, from Rome and okay. giving the papacy control over choosing, choosing archbishops and, and filling vacant positions without kings and princes and dukes and counts, uh, permission, essentially. Henry was very much against that for obvious reasons. So this has almost been like a struggle longer than mm. you think, because talking about your favourite, Henry VIII, um, you always assume that that's when the trouble between like crown and church began mm. but it's obviously been going on a lot longer than yeah than that i mean arguably the most famous document of of the medieval world is born out of an argument with the church magna carta mm. um the first clause is about protecting the rights of the church obviously this is the son of of, of henry the second spoiler um <laughs> he doesn't survive um but yeah this this fight with the church is uh it bubbles up every now and again, but yeah, Henry II was um, was very, very much a believer. Probably didn't use the phrase, but in the divine right of kings. Yeah. So it's um, is it kind of is the landscape like a young man's game? Bless you. Yeah. I'm, thank you. Um, <laughs> again, I hate to make comparisons, but to a young Henry VIII. He probably modelled himself on somebody like Henry II or Edward I, very military first, prowess second, everything else third. Like, I'm a, I'm a big, strong dude. I've got long, flowing red hair. I'm, re I'm related to the devil. You know, like, come at me. Mm. I've got nothing to lose. You know, my wife is Eleanor of Aquitaine. What more could a man want? <laughs> Your favourite. She is my favourite. Um, yeah, favorite. so uh, again, the, the landscape there is a, a lot of young lads together. Yeah, and we know so. we know what young lads are like when they get together. Um, yeah, and and Thomas, as much as obviously his later life says kind of otherwise, he was 
very much part of that. He took a, he took a famous um, trip to France, um, I think in 1158, um, and it was arguably the most like fancy parade you've ever seen. If anybody knows the, um, again, Henry VIII, he's going up a guy. Um, the a Field of the Cloth of Gold um, kind of celebration between him and Francois II in 1520. Um, it was very, very similar. So Thomas went over as like a, it was a political envoy kind of thingamajig. He had thousands of household knights with him, like the finest furs. Like it was like literally miles and miles long, this train of people. And you've seen, you've seen 300, haven't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know the scene with Xerxes being like carried on that big plinth? Yes, yeah, it's, it's my dream. Imagine that. Yeah, imagine. But imagine that as the, um, the Chancellor. Um, he was carried in such pomp and ceremony. Like he had hawks all over him and hunting dogs and f- the finest horses. And, and this guy was like legit. So when people saw him, they went, you know, if this is how... The Chancellor of the Exchequer is presented. How must the King of England be, you know, this this Emperor of from you know from the Scottish borders all the way down to the Pyrenees Mountains? This guy must be like insane. Um, so yeah, he was very much part of that lads' club. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting how he he went from that younger man who was a bit showy and a bit flashy to mm. later on in life. scaling everything back and finding god or finding religion and then eventually becoming in some people's eyes a martyr and Mm. um sort of pulling away from that whole lifestyle that he knew as a as a youth yeah i mean another another strange example of thomas beckett applying himself to whatever situation is in is henry was waging war in france shock Um, and uh, it was at the Siege of Toulouse Um, correct me if I'm wrong I'm sure it's Toulouse Um, and it was a bit of a stalemate the the French kind of royal army was on its way everyone was like nah let's let's chip let's go Um, and Beckett was like nope I'm staying we're going to fight and throughout this campaign he was the first man in charging away you know really you know living the life of the chivalric kind of prince Um, and it's contrary to everything we kind of know about yeah. the saintly Thomas Beckett. Yeah, it's not but the image to, you have. No, not at all. He seemed to, um, which I think is a wonderful attribute to have, is he seemed to be able to, whatever he was doing, he was able to apply himself to that. And through sheer will of kind of like wanting to do a good job, he succeeded in everything he did. Except yeah. surviving, I guess. <laughs> it's, um, it, we'll get on to his, uh, his end later mm. on maybe at the end or near the end um but it's uh it one a, a comparison to people in modern day is that um a lot of people who have uh, quite colorful lives quite um uh i don't know sex drugs rock and roll you name it who then find solace in something else so whether that be faith or whether that be um moving away to the countryside or whether that be mm. it's almost like, like a slowing down yeah and a, and a taking a step back realizing that you're not gonna be around forever and you need to slow down a little bit um but he's done it like hard hasn't he <laughs> yeah i mean 
like I said, he's, he remained celibate his entire life. He was, he was a pious man as well. He, he was trained to be a, a, a priest, essentially, a clerk, a clerk. Um, he, was a, he was a man of God. He was a lay man of God, so he wasn't, a, he wasn't ordained until, obviously, he became Archbishop of Canterbury. But, um, yeah, he, he definitely lived a, a colourful life. And this is um, this is pre-Reformation, so this is mm. uh, uh, Catholicism that we're talking about, which is something that I never picked up on, and I don't know why I never picked up on because it's something I talk about quite a lot. So we go into well, so I, I was in Canterbury Cathedral, and obviously the dates of it, I'm like, oh well, this is an Anglian church, and I was like, hold on, wait a minute, <laughs> it wasn't an Anglian church, no. it was a, a Catholic church, and that, it's just been rebranded as something else, mm. or repurposed, but originally it would have been a Catholic church. That's that's my, as you know, that's my bugbear with Henry VIII, one of my many issues with Henry VIII, and just the Reformation uh, movement in, in Britain, I'm including Scotland in this in general. Mm. Um, not that I'm a religious person at all, um, but the fact that we have lost so much of our history through the destruction of physical uh, wealth, um, it's just very sad that we, we don't even have the grave of Alfred the Great. Mm. Um, we don't have the shrine of Thomas Beckett, which we'll get onto. You know, they were the one that you saw is obviously not the original that was built in 1212. Mm-hmm. 1220, sorry, it's, it's a remake. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's, it just, it's just sad that we'll never get to see um, a lot of the, you know, the beautiful, um, beautifully decorated Catholic churches, monasteries and cathedrals of, of Britain. And yeah, Henry VIII sucks. <laughs> and yet we still talk about him a lot. He's, he lives in my head rent-free. so we've um we've talked about henry uh the second and thomas beckett kind of being lads and and getting on very well when did the relationship start to break down so the relationship started to break down um pretty much as soon as he became archbishop so theobald dies in uh, the end of 1161. So Beckett had been a fairly decent uh, chancellor for sort of six years. And Henry was like, this is my guy. This is my best mate in the world. We're two peas in a pod. There's only one man I want on my side in the church. Um, and that's Thomas Beckett. Uh, originally, Beckett's like, I don't want that job. I, I cannot do that because I'll have to choose between my king and my god. Mm. Um, so he, he kind of forewarned him, like, look, dude, I'm not, I'm not going to mess about with you here. This is not, this is not the job you want me doing. Yeah. Basically saying, I'm going to do a good job and it's not going to be for you. Um, so yeah, he's, he's, um, made archbishop and he's consecrated. Yeah. 1160, uh, 1162. Um, and pretty much from the moment, moment like go, it's, uh, okay, cool, we need to start talking about the rights of the church. And Henry's like, oh, no, oh, no, they're my rights. Every person under under the king is under my rule. Uh, for context, um, the lay courts, so the courts of me and you, um, were, the, were the crown courts that we still have today. Yeah. Um, you know, justice of the peace would travel the country and, you know, ad, 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 and do justice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
um, hear local disputes, things like that. And then if you were a priest or a nun or a man of cloth or a woman of the cloth kind of thing, you would be tried in a uh, church court. Okay. Because um, you were given the uh, the kind of the, the right of the cloth, I think it's referred to, or the, the privilege of the, of the cloth, where essentially you were you were free of all lay um, responsibilities. So obviously, you had no property, you had no family, um, therefore you could not be tried as a lay person. You could only be tried as a as a member of the church. That meant that a lot of churchmen, churchmen usually, got away with a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, that you don't need to be a historian to work out what men that don't no. get so there's, to do much yeah. end so up there's doing. A, uh, we can just say it. There's a history of uh, paedophilia in yep. um, the church and abuse. Yeah. Um, and also lesser things like drinking, gambling, having sex, having mm-hmm. families. Like England, because... Christianity has been in England since the 6th century, 5th, 7th century. Um, there's been a lot of iterations of it. There was times where it was okay for a priest to have a family. There was times where it wasn't, and it was again, and it wasn't. So there was, there was lots of rules. Prostitution was legal, but it was, it was pretty much, you know, it was kind of outlawed. Did priests go visit? There's so much, there's so much nuance to the, to the church in England, and, and it's not my area of absolute, absolute expertise, but... Yeah, there was there was a lot of um, a lot of randy old dudes probably. <laughs> um, for yes. lack of a better phrase. Yeah, and um, um... but the church courts would pretty much say, "Don't do that again." Say three three Hail Marys and go live on the continent for a few years. That would pretty much be it. And Henry was like, "No way, I can make money out of this. I can claim church land. I can make money out of this." So this is why he goes so much against the Gregorian reforms that put all of the power into the papacy um, as this legal body as well as this spiritual body. Do you think um, Henry felt a little bit like betrayed by um, Beckett? Because he was like, do you know what? You're my man. Like, you're going to sort me out. <laughs> but also in, in, in Thomas's defence, he did give him fair warning. Mm. Um, and in a way, if you're going to give a man that's so good at his job another job, He's probably going to do that just as well, and he did. He he. Well, he attempted to um, assert the rights of the church and these church courts to try these wayward bish- uh, bishops and priests and monks, etc. Like they weren't all horrendous crimes. Like I said, they were like gambling and, and sex mm. and things like that, whatever. Um, but um, Henry and him slowly fell out, um, and by 1164, he basically put him on trial at Northampton, called him a traitor. Um, it was basically a mock trial. Um, it was fixed. He was always going to find him guilty of this horrendous betrayal. You know, like you say, he probably did feel betrayed. Um, and before he could be arrested, um, he Thomas Beckett fled to the continent, where he stayed in exile for six years. That's a long time to stay in exile. Mm. Yeah, um, he became pretty good mates, as I'm sure you can imagine, with the with the French um, court. So he was good pals with, with uh, Louis VII, the first wife of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, and the relationship between Louis and Henry was probably better than it kind of should have been in a way. Mm. He'd, he'd married his ex-wife, had several sons with her that Louis had still not had at this point. 
Um, so, and he'd also then married his eldest son, Henry, who became the young king, who died um, before his father. He, he was um, betrothed to one of Eleanor and, um, not one of Eleanor's, one of his, uh, uh, one of Louis's daughters with his second wife. Um, so he basically would have been in position to inherit everything. Uh, so the relationship was, was much more lopsided towards Henry. But then when Beckett goes and, you know, chums up with Louis, it, it exacerbates things to a, to a level that only a man capable of eating his own bed um, would kind of understand. So was Thomas Beckett still Archbishop of Canterbury when he was exiled? <sighs> yeah, I mean, they never filled the position until his death. Like, he, Henry would refer to him as formerly the Archbishop of Canterbury. But... There was never another Archbishop of Canterbury. So what, what um, medieval monarchs in England, Henry II and famously John, did was they would leave church positions open. So let's say the Bishop of Norwich dies tomorrow um, and it's 1187. Um, what I could do as king, could I could say, Ollie, do you fancy being the Bishop of Norwich? And you'd be like, yeah, cool, man. Nice one. Or I could go, actually, I don't know who I want to be the Bishop of Norwich. I'm just going to leave it open. But in that time, all of its rents come to me. Mm. So what he was able to do is he confiscated the lands of Canterbury, which as I'm sure you can imagine, as you've seen the cathedral, yes. pretty tasty. Yes. Um, so yeah, he was technically still Archbishop of Canterbury, but um, there was a lot of kind of sectarian politics going on in the church. So there were some bishops that were for Thomas, some bishops that were royalists. Most of them were just scared to death of this guy that literally eats his own bed. Um, God, I feel so sorry for Eleanor sometimes. He was obviously a troubled yes. man. Um, um, and a lot of pressure on a young person's yeah. shoulder. Yeah, because he was, he was obviously... He was relatively, relatively young when he inherited the throne. He was... Well, it's 1154 was when he became King of England, Duke of Aquitaine, Duke of Normandy, Count of Anjou, Maine, Touraine. Um, later became pretty much Lord of Ireland. You know, he, this guy's yeah. not just got, you know, oh, my paper round's really tricky. It's like, <laughs> I, the, you know, as the Victorians always do, they give things names. And the Angevin, Ampi- Angevin Empire, sorry, um, was... One of the la- well, not one of the largest sort, but he became one of the the richest princes in in Christendom. Yeah, it's incredible. So when, um, so firstly, why did Thomas Beckett decide to come back, and what happened next in the story? So during the sort of mid twelfth century, it's a pretty messy time for the church in general. So as well as the Pope. There is an anti-pope, um, basically the German emperor or the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, not holy, not Roman, nor an empire, um, <laughs> famously, um, Frederick Barbarossa. Um, he fell out with the pope massively, as the German emperors often did, over land, and he elected his own pope. So there's lots of drama going on. And basically, Louis, the pope, Henry and all these little minor players all just wanted really a, you know, a, a peaceful solution to this incredibly messy political, religious, military melting pot of, of 
pure hell essentially it could have been mm. uh, and eventually over so there's so many um talks and court battles where they accuse each other of, of all these things and thomas refuses at all to, at all costs he refuses to accept that the king has power over the church. He was very, quite a stubborn man, wasn't very, he? Very, very. And both of them were, and I think that's why they clashed so much, yeah. because Henry was like, but I'm the king, and Thomas is like, yeah, but he's God. Mm, he's above and you, I, yeah. Yeah, and I guess if you're a 12th century nobleman, that's a pretty compelling argument on both sides. Mm, yeah. Um, but yeah, essentially he's very reluctantly, he's back in England in 1170, and it, not, not all is well. There's a lot of discontent like I said, a lot of the bishops are still not feeling Thomas being back. He's pretty much seen as this kind of wayward, zealous, um, like, <sighs> runaway bishop that is, is trying to, you know, you know collapse this, um, the, the crown of England. But um, on the flip side, Thomas refuses to give him the kiss of peace, um, which is like the, the medieval handshake. Once you've given the kiss of peace, all's done. Ki- is it actually a kiss? Yeah, so the, the famous like kiss on the hand or the kiss oh, on the okay. cheek. Yeah. Um, They're like, not just going to snog in the middle of... No, they don't just get off with each other. <laughs> I mean, they might have done. There was... There maybe, obviously... that's, maybe that's the issue. Maybe they were maybe. just a couple and they just fell well, out. Well, there are always the rumours. I don't believe them at all. Um, not for any reason other than I just don't believe that the two, the two had a romantic relationship. They probably even, shit. I didn't even know that was a rumour. I mean, that might be breaking news that I've just broken to the world. But no, there are, there are very, very, very poor, poorly sourced rumours that they were such good friends that they must have been. But the problem is in medieval England and things like that is sharing beds with your knights and your friends was completely, completely normal. normal. Yeah. Um, they were your brothers in arms in, in every sense of the word. Yeah. And T- top Beckett to toe. And a different... Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, <laughs> I hate you. But yeah, they were. Bed. Get away from me. I know she won't listen, so yes, me too. <laughs> if you are listening, I, I just love sharing a bed with you. It's the best. And she, she, is, a, she is a real person. It's yeah, not, it's not um... Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> Chris um, does actually have a partner in real life. My actual girlfriend is not. Eleanor of Aquitaine. She is Louisa, and she's great. She is the reincarnation yes. <laughs> of Eleanor of Aquitaine. Um, <laughs> so Beckett is back. He is in trouble, clearly with the crown, and, mm. but he is not backing down, and neither is no. Henry the Second. So, what happens now? <laughs> So this is the part of the story that most people know, although most people are aware of the famous line that is apparently said by Henry. So Henry's in Normandy at this point, and he's told of Beckett being Beckett. Um, you know, classic Thomas probably said something like that. Ah, oh, it's classic Tom. <laughs> um, and he, he utters something along the lines of, will no one rid me of this petulant priest or this turbulent priest, this low-born clerk? Um, probably a throwaway line. You know, I, I'm someone that is known for my outbursts as well. Um, it's something I carry with me every I've, day. I've been a witness to many of them. <laughs> They, it comes out of nowhere, and it's the kind of thing I would say if I had an archbishop that was pissing me off. Yeah. 
But he, Henry unfortunately said it in front of the wrong people. Um, so Henry was surrounded by his, his nobles, his ladies, his, probably his children at the time, if they weren't rebelling against him, which they did later. Um, and f- four very, very low-level knights, uh, Reginald Fitzurse, Hugh de Morville, William de Tracy and Richard Le Breton, looking for a way into the king's kind of good books when Mint, we've got an in here. He doesn't like Thomas Beckett. We don't like Thomas Beckett. Let's go on a lad's holiday to Canterbury. Let's do him in. So without any permission, without any, are you sure, King Henry, are you sure this is what you want us to do? They go to Canterbury and on the 29th of December, they enter the, you know, Cathedral of Canterbury, the head, the, you know, the, the, the top of the, tower of of the church in england the the seat of the um de facto king of the church i guess um and they brutally uh, murder thomas beckett um by hitting him so hard with the sword that the sword shatters um famously throwing his guts all these his brains sorry all over the uh the altar which you stood on a few days ago i did I did, and the the church looks slightly different back mm. then. So you hear the stories the the steps of the of the cathedral. I mean, he wasn't actually murdered outside; he was inside um, the church, I believe. Mm. Yes, he was. He was at the altar. Yeah, yeah. and it was um, it's this is where it gets a bit muddy for me. So I again the 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 very little research that I did on Beckett. Um, there was this quite compelling argument that he had provoked these men, like to do mm. it to what, so he could become a martyr, a martyr in the church. Yeah, I, I think, um, and he and he mentions it prior to this meeting with the four knights that. Um, he makes reference to his potential death and like his potential martyrdom that I, I he said, I, I will die for the church, essentially, as if he had prior knowledge to this event. And, you know, whether it's piety or stupidity or arrogance, he didn't put up a fight. He he's basically I'm going to kneel down in prayer, uh, do what you must. Um, I am no traitor because they basically say die traitor. Um, Henry II sends his regards kind of thing and he says I'm I'm no traitor of the king and dies um, dies a martyr and I think in a way his arrogance and his pride led him to to take the take his death as he did yeah it's it's really interesting because obviously no one was there apart from the people that that killed him and Beckett well, himself, or is that the, not true? It's actually quite well documented. Oh, okay. Um, so, one of his uh, bishops was there, and that's where we get most of our kind of report from. It was a pretty much eyewitness report. Um, that's really interesting. We know who they were. We know how he died. We know where he died. We know what he said. We know he was wearing a hair shirt under his um, clothes. Yes, I heard that. It's um, is that to do with to feel 
like to not be comfortable. Do you know what I mean? To feel yes. your um, body. Um, I don't know. It's like a it's spiritual like fi- thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's it's like physical sin. It's these hair shirts were rat. Uh, sorry, rat infested, flea infested. So they would itch, and you would bleed, and you would have like you know awful like essentially ulcers on your skin, and it would be like this is the this is me in permanent penance for sin. Um, it's it's fairly common for religious and, and noble, you know, men and probably women to, to wear these hair shirts periodically is like, I've done a bad thing, I must wear this as penance. But yeah, he was famously found wearing a hair shirt. Um, whereas this man was notorious as a chance as the Chancellor for his his fine, you know, ermine robes and velvets and silks and So it's like he's seen like he's devoted his whole self to God yeah. and to the church. And uh, he doesn't need those worldly possessions anymore. And actually, he's probably uh, wearing these things and causing himself pain for possible sins <laughs> of of his past. I don't know. Yes. Um, yeah. I think I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah. So what what was the atmosphere like after the news broke that he died or was murdered? So by the the four knights fled. Um, they were pretty much kind of chased out of um, the realm. Um, and Henry, by all accounts, was absolutely distraught. Um, and when I mentioned earlier about he said it in front of the wrong people, you know, if you have an outburst in front of your friends, they're just going to go, whatever, mm. it's Ollie being Ollie. What, we know whatever it's about. Yeah. But you say it around an acquaintance that kind of knows who you are, they might take it as gospel, and these, these chaps did. Um, and when Henry found out, he was he was he was absolutely heartbroken. So Henry wasn't friend. aware. No, no, no. He he. As far as we know, and this is where obviously, do, did he do it on? Did he say it with the intention of killing him? Was it just a oh, I'm so sick of this guy kind of comment? I I'm very much pro Henry in this situation. I don't believe he he truly meant for him to die. Maybe down the line, if it had carried on, but. He had plenty of opportunity yeah, we've to have all had, executed. We've all had, like said things that we don't yeah. mean. Um, um, but yeah, famously wow. he um, he wore, eventually a few a few I think it was a few years later, if not a few months. Um, Henry famously walked crying shirtless through Canterbury Cathedral as the monks was whipped that, him. Oh, yes, okay, that's him. I've got the link now, okay, because I knew that that happened. I didn't know which monarch it was, and I didn't know why, so now I know. <laughs> yeah, um, there you go. There you More go, you that's know. the link. Oh, Apparently amazing. he spent three days in tears, um, you know, mourning for his friends, um, and I don't think that's the sign of a man that is, not ne- is necessarily um, coherent. Um, in general, I'm not making a claim here that Henry II was, was a mad king by any stretch of the imagination. I think he was, he was probably very depressed. His, his relationship with Eleanor was not good. Um, his relationship with his sons by this point was getting very testy. Because um, yeah, didn't they all try to bump him off? Pretty much every single one of his sons at one point or the other rebelled against him. Can so you Henry, imagine having children uh, exactly. and them trying to kill you? So Henry the Young King, his kind of... Pride and joy. His his eldest surviving son, uh, not his eldest son. He had uh, he had a son called William, who unfortunately died uh, as an infant. But yeah, Henry um, 
Henry was the first to rebel because he's essentially like, Dad, when am I going to get anything to like look after? Um, he rebelled with his brother, Geoffrey, and his famous brother, Richard, soon to be Lionheart. Um, yes. And then, unfortunately, on Henry's deathbed, so this is 10 years later, 20 years later even, nearly, 11, in this sort of 11, 88, 89, his favourite son, for some reason, John, eventually rebelled against him as well. And apparently that's what Henry II died of. He died of a broken heart when he heard that John had rebelled against him as well. Um, but yeah, he lived... Um, his, his reputation and his kind of legacy, I guess, is marred by this death um, of Beckett. And after 1170, um, his, his reputation of this glorious, um, you know worldly military king was kind of replaced by this priest killer lunatic that can't look after his children um, who is power hungry and dies a broken old feeble man it's it's really sad it's It's interesting how history has um recorded both henry and um beckett because beckett is now infamous like he's a saint uh for both uh the catholic and the protestant church uh he is well known even if you don't particularly know why mm. everyone knows the name <laughs> mm. um everyone knows uh that he was was murdered in his church and he's seen as a saint and a martyr and all that kind of stuff whereas henry to the non-historian is kind of a footnote mm. in it all which to me is a you know a medieval historian as a medievalist it's it's incredibly sad because like i said henry and eleanor of aquitaine are probably the most interesting couple ever i would argue um everybody knows me knows how much i love eleanor but <laughs> I, lo- I love henry just as much i think obviously i know you're not supposed to be biased but as stories they're just the most interesting stories and yeah it's it's strange that you know beckett was made a saint in 1173, this grand shrine was built in the 1220s, um, and yeah, it was it, he was the most visited shrine in England. And obviously. still to this day, mm. thousands upon thousands of people come and yeah. pilgrimage to. I, I basically went on pilgrimage to London for my birthday when I went at the British Museum. There mm. was the I was very very fortunate to go to the exhibition on the on the on the murder of Thomas Beckett. It was it was a wonderful experience and if if it's still on, I think it's still on until August. People still have the chance, I do recommend it. Um I might do that actually. Oh it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. You got to see the miracle windows which are usually at Canterbury Cathedral, uh which show the the miracles associated with Thomas Beckett, because obviously after he died, miracles were reported because that's what happens. <laughs> Isn't that I, what makes you a saint? Yes, you have to be. Um, you have to not decompose, and you have to be able to like miracles have to have been reported and stuff like that. So what? So you alluded to it earlier. So what happened to his body? What was left of it? So it was um, it was interred in, in Canterbury Cathedral um, and put in this grand shrine. Uh, said in the twelve twenties, um, I got to see a little bit of his skull, or what we think is his skull. Um, at the British Museum. It's a tiny, tiny little piece of his head, oh. um, which may have obviously come off when he was... Hit with a sword. 
clobbered death. So there's, um, um, if you look at the... Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, carry on. Uh, I was going to say, so if you look at um, any stained glass or you look at any sort of uh, pictures of uh, Beckett, there's always a sword through his head. It's in my literal, my phone wallpaper is from a manuscript and it is the murder of Thomas Beckett. Um, and I'm looking at it right now and it's Thomas Beckett kneeling down with a dude with a sword on his bonds. It's literally on everything. Everything that they sell at the British Museum with Thomas Beckett on is Thomas Beckett, Beckett being murdered. They absolutely love that image. That just sums up the Brits, doesn't it, down to a T. Love a, yeah. love a daytime oh, yeah. murder. Well, was it a daytime murder or was it an evening murder? It was in the evening. Oh, um, okay. So it was like eve- evening prayer. Um, and yeah, he was, he was murdered in the evening. So what... We've kind of alluded to what their legacies are, but just sum, mm. it, sum it up for me. So Beckett, um, famously, like you said, is a saint, um, still recognised today, Sir Thomas, uh, Sir Thomas, Saint Thomas of Canterbury, Saint Thomas the Martyr, Saint Thomas Beckett. Um, famously, his, his shrine was destroyed in 1538 by Henry VIII during the <laughs> Reformation. Because if you think about it, Thomas Beckett is the absolute antithesis of what Henry thought about the church. He yes, was very similar. absolutely yeah. against um, royal power over the church. So yeah, it was sadly destroyed, um, bones scattered, all that kind of malarkey. And, but he remained, um, obviously, later on after Catholicism was kind of welcomed back into Britain um, a little bit more, and it wasn't illegal to be a, a Catholic. Um, he was kind of welcomed back, and his legacy today, like like you said, is still very, very clean. Um, I've I've just read, I've just finished reading um, the biography of Thomas Beckett by John Guy. I recommend reading it if anybody would like to get some more reading. Uh, it's very very positive towards Thomas, and it's very, I wouldn't I want to say negative about Henry, but it's it's fairly it's fairly pro Thomas Beckett. But that's kind of the history we're taught, and you know, in terms of Henry's legacy. He's very much outshone by his, his two famous sons, Richard the Lionheart and King John. Um, and I would argue that his wife is more famous than he is, and I'm all for that, because <laughs> we know my feelings on, on Eleanor. Is there an Eleanor of Aquitaine fan club that you could join forward slash start? I mean, according to my Instagram bio, I am the number one Eleanor Aquitaine fan. If anybody out there... Have you changed it? It used to yeah, be up at the first. Yeah, it used to be, but I felt like I couldn't... I couldn't pretend anymore. Um, I you had, had to, to let ease, it out. ease us in gently with Edward the Third, and then you could Ed, go... Edward, Edward's my boy. Edward will always be my boy. But, yeah. El- Eleanor's just, I think, the most... She just lived the most colourful, fascinating life. She went on crusade... She was married to two kings. So would she have known Thomas Beckett? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Eleanor and um, Henry were married in 1152, so just before he became king of England. So when they were at court in, I don't know, Clarendon or Northampton or London, Tom would have been there. I'm calling him Tom like I know him. Um, Dude, after this episode... One, one of my mates, one of my best mates in the world is called Tom. Um, and I've been working with him today, so maybe 
maybe I'm thinking about him. Just call him Beckett tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. Alright, Beckett. Beckett. I don't know. I'm, don't know. I'm a Cockney at work. Alright, mate. Um, <laughs> it's interesting how you said that book is very favourable towards one over the other because as readers, we quite like it clean cut, don't we? We mm. like a goodie and a baddie, and depending very, on who's writing it. Yeah, it's very difficult as a historian, as a kind of. Um, I'm probably, I'd consider myself like a biographical historian. I like mm. people and, and those stories. It's very difficult to form truly um, non-bias arguments. And I don't really think we should mm. uh, in a way because what's the point in reading, say, my book on Eleanor of Aquitaine and then Alison Weir's book on Eleanor of Aquitaine if you're going to get the same narrative all the way through? Mm. It's interesting because they're so... There's differences to different people and actually we we kind of align with hmm. people that we find intriguing whether we align with them religiously politically um or we just think they're like a badass <laughs> and we think yeah, they're exactly. just amazing it's cool yeah yeah absolutely um yeah it's interesting because there's obviously characters characters like they're not real people that <laughs> there's historical figures that you and i probably like for different reasons or you like yeah. them and i don't and then i do and you don't it's just the way it is <laughs> yeah um but that's yeah that's kind of my whole argument with history when people are like oh chris why do you why do you like history where's that come from and i'm like what do you do in your spare time they're like oh, i don't know watch tv play games and i'm like every single character you read about watch or anything there's somebody in history that that is not necessarily based on directly, but, mm. you know, even you've got people like Henry II and Thomas Beckett, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and later you've got, you know, evil King John fighting potentially Robin Hood. Uh, you've got, you know, Robert the Bruce and William Wallace and Edward the, Edward the First, Edward Longshanks and the Black Prince and all these people that are just like made-up characters, but the best thing about them is it all happened. Yeah. That's what makes it cool. Yeah. It's when I worked at Bletchley Park. So this, their slogan, um, so without spoiling it for everyone, so you kind of go in and it um, there's like a, a projection on the wall, and you you start watching it. And it starts sort of like telling you about the build up to World War Two and and kind mm. of what they what had to happen with with um, uh, breaking the code and everything. And there's loads of these images on the wall, and 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 then right at the end. It's just like, and it happened here. And it's like, it's a really touching moment because you're like, oh my God, I'm in the place mm. <laughs> that it happened. Mm. Um, I don't know that, what my point was there. but No, I, it's a valid point and I know what you're trying to say. It's like... It's real. It's very visceral if you kind of let it be. Um, like I was, when we were in the British Museum, like for context, Louisa, my, my partner, she doesn't care about history. She's not, she's not interested in it. She, she just doesn't, she's, we're not on the same kind of wavelength when it comes to that. It's cool, that's fine. But I was stood there and I was like, I'm quite emotional because I'm looking at a piece of, potentially a piece of a man that was murdered in a, in a time that is so far away and, and so, so alien and yet, you know, it's like, it's like seeing my favourite TV character. Mm. Um, yeah, I've got um, emotional. Is probably not the right word, but I felt something before when there's been an object or an item or a place that I've spoken about for 
ages and you've done research on it and mm. and um uh yeah it, it's just and then when you're there and you're like wow this is this is incredible mm. um and it uh, kind of it's happened the opposite way around with Canterbury Cathedral because obviously I knew the name uh, Thomas Beckett but it didn't even tweak to me until I was in the cathedral and I was wandering yeah. around that actually this is where he was killed mm. and then I was just like oh I really need to know that story like now <laughs> yeah it's, um, it's it's a it's an incredible story and like I said if I if you saw it on tv or in a film you probably wouldn't believe it had happened that's what makes it even more insane to me so is there any um tv adaptations or film adaptations do you know not any to the point where I've seen them. I was, I kind of, I was talking uh, on Twitter briefly about why there is this absence of medieval TV shows. Like, think of the some of the Good really. Point. Yeah, it's there's so some of the two of my most favorite, most favorite. Am I a seven year old? Two of my um, favorite TV shows I've watched in the last few years. Um, I'm currently watching Vikings, which is I'm very late to the party. Oh, it's very good. Though. It's cracking. Christ, mm. it's wholy inaccurate. But what's the, what's I'm not the one main of those character? What's his name? Uh, Ragnar Lothbrok. Oh, he's very dishy. Yeah, he's a good-looking chap. He I mean, is. it's a good-looking cast. To be fair, both sides of the um, mm. on all on all shades. You, of, no of one gender. would watch it, would they? If they had like their teeth punched out and stuff, no. would they? <laughs> but m- misconception about Vikings is they genuinely really did care about hygiene. Uh, oh, the Danes, teeth. the Danes are a good-looking yeah, they bunch are. of people. They really are tall, um, slim, handsome, <laughs> everything. I'm not. Anyway, Mate. moving on. <laughs> yeah, um, I watched Vikings at the moment, and then I'm um, anticipating the fifth season of The Last Kingdom. Um, which, if you haven't seen The Last Kingdom, it's like Vikings but with Anglo-Saxons, and it's. I would say better. It's on Netflix, isn't it? On Netflix, yeah. Netflix. If you are listening. I do have an idea for a TV show about the white ship disaster, which leads to the anarchy. Mate, talk to me, Netflix, Amazon, whoever it is. Did we do an episode on the white ship? Why do I yeah, recognise? Yeah, I was drunk. It was the anarchy episode. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, you had like two sips. Yeah, I had, I had two beers. Two full cans. You crazy horse. A f- full alcoholic, but yeah, I'm... I'm not very good at alcohol. I am not very good um, at alcohol at all. I um, Yeah, so I was obviously down in Canterbury for quite sad reasons. Um, went to the funeral of, of my friend that passed away, um, who was a guest on this show many, many a times. But um, it's the first time I'd drunk in ages. <laughs> mm. And by the end, I was feeling a little bit tipsy. I was like, I can't get the bus home. I need to get mm. a taxi. Um, but it was a very lovely occasion, and yes. Um, yes, it was it was very nice. But um, yes, it was. I I was a lightweight as well. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, it was it was hard times. Um, but yeah, so I feel you with that one. I would like to know if Thomas Beckett ever drank. I mean, his his diet is is fairly well recorded because he we probably had IBS. Ah, um, interesting. So his his diet was fairly bland, um, but I don't think he could stomach wine um, very or beer. I think he drank a lot of water, which was quite weird for the time, or like um, sweet mead and things like that. Cause it yeah, because too... water wasn't very clean, was it? No. It was actually cleaner to have hops. That's, that, 
that's why um, beer and and mead and things is is so popular in in northern Europe because wine didn't grow. Mm, um, true. Well, it did and it didn't because there was this weird medieval um, like hot period. Um, anyway, hot stink, don't they? Absolutely yeah. stink. But uh, yeah, that's why we we're a, a country of terrible drunks. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you know where the word salary comes from? Uh, I know it's Norman French. So um, the word salary um, meant salt. Yes. Which is what people used to be paid in. Yes. So that's, that's why we still use the word salary. I'm pretty sure there's a book about salt. It was just so valuable because it, it could yes. preserve your meat mm. before fridge and freezers. I'm sure there's a book about like salt. It's like history told through salt. <laughs> um, I yeah. mean, that's not the most grabbing title. I can't. It's, it's definitely not the title of the book, and I'm definitely underselling it. Netflix, don't listen to this bit because I undersell things. Um, but yeah. It's, Can you imagine um, seeing a book with just a pile of salt on the top of it? I'd be like, no, thank you. Because they say don't judge a book by its cover, but let's be honest, we all do. I've got some books that I've judged purely on the cover. Yeah, no, me too. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm looking at them now and I'm like, I have read you and you are good, but. You are fit as well. It's so yeah, yeah. It's like you are. You look good on my bookshelf. Mm. Um. So, what was that book that you mentioned on Thomas Beckett? Are there any more that you would recommend? Um. Let me have a look through my library. So, like I said, Thomas Beckett. Um. By uh, John Guy. I'm just coming to the end of it now. Um. Is a great biography. Um. Of Thomas Beckett. Um, the Plantagenets by Dan Jones. I'm always going to plug uh, Dan Jones. Yeah, so um, I've just downloaded one of his audio books. I've not started it yet, but I will. Which one? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they're all great. Yeah. They're all wicked. It was, um... Bear with me. Keep talking. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll <laughs> find out. Let's have a look what else I've got. Um, let's have a look. So I, I've kind of come to Henry II and Thomas a little bit later... Um, so I've kind of gone back and read a little bit more. Yeah. Um, King of the North Wind by Claudia Gold is wonderful. That's probably one of the best books I've ever read. King of the North. Uh, and that's about um, Henry II. That's really good. Um, also, Eleanor of Aquitaine's biography by Alison Weir. Of course. Of so course. I was meant to go see a book tour with Alison Weir, but then it got mm. cancelled because of the COVID pandemic. Always hmm, getting yes. in the way. So it is uh, Dan Jones' The Plantagenets that I've downloaded. Mm, it's so that's a wonderful book, okay. as I'm sure you can imagine. So I've done it in audiobook form, so I will listen to that in the car. Is he I'm... reading it? Because it's great when he reads yeah, I think he he's is. got a really good voice. I think for I it. chose that on purpose because he was reading good. it. Um, yeah. yeah, I like it when the author reads the book. Yeah. Because they can yeah, put their great. own like, oomph on it. Um, okay. That's really interesting, Chris. Thank you for opening my mind on Anytime. Um, on Beckett and uh, Henry II, which I literally knew nothing about. I hadn't even heard his name, really, before. So that's, um, that's definitely opened my, uh, uh, opened my eyes a little bit. Good. Um, that's what we like. It is that time of the day where we promote your fantastic work on um 
the internet, on print, um, on here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, if, if people were looking for more content from you, where would they find it? Uh, I mean, the first place you would find it is in Ollie's back catalogue. Um, I feature <laughs> here every now and again. Um, I'm like the drunk ant that just turns up sometimes. But uh, yeah, we, we've had ta- we've we've had discussions on on Edward the Third. We've we've discussed the the anarchy and the white ship disaster and things like that. Um, so if you want more context specifically around this time period, um, Ollie Ollie has the goods. Um, <laughs> if you want more of me, um, and, who which, d- and who doesn't? <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling I'm feeling fruity. So yeah, why not? Um, <laughs> I would follow at Chris Riley History on Instagram. Um, that's my my personal. Instagram. Um, there's a little bit of me and my life, but it's mainly mainly history. Um, you can also um, check out my website, um, thehistorycorner.org, and then at historycornerblog on Instagram. Um, we share content from all over the world, whether it's just straight up history articles. Um, we do book reviews, game reviews, film reviews. If it's history, we will cover it. Um, we're always looking for people to contribute as well. Uh, Ollie has written some wonderful pieces about the Victorians and the Stuarts, and I'm sure there's some more to come. There is. Uh, <laughs> there in my it's a my to do pile. Good. There's no there's no there's no pressure. No. Um, so yeah, come and get involved. Read some stuff. Leave us a review. Um, and also, uh, Ollie, when's this going out? Whenever I feel like editing it. That's the Ollie we know and love. I'm assuming by the time this comes out that the third edition of the Historians magazine that I'm very, very privileged to be a part of will be out. Um, again, you can find the Historians magazine at the Historians magazine on Instagram. Um, this edition is all about key events that changed the world. I have written a piece about the Norman invasion of England um, and how um, language, culture... Um, political system completely changed virtually overnight um, but there's all sorts of good stuff in there um, you can find that other editions on the first edition is pretty general and then the second edition is all about um, women of history um, surprisingly I did not write anything in this one about anybody called Eleanor I'm, I'm impressed, to be honest. Although maybe that's a theme that you should just keep going forever. Like, how many times can you regurgitate well, the, one, the same person? <laughs> it's funny you say that, because my next post that's coming out on Instagram is about um, Sir Lancelot, and I've somehow made it about Eleanor of Of course you have. Of but course you have. you'll have to wait and see. Also, so, follow sorry. me on Twitter. Yes. I use Twitter now for some reason. Um, at Chris Riley History was too long, so it's at Chris Rye, so Chris R I History. Um, yeah, follow me on that. That'd be cool because um, I don't really know what Twitter is. I'm a 28 year old moron, so I don't get it. Yeah, I Twitter seems to be for grown ups. I think. I think that's mm. the. That's. The I was on it one. years ago. I was on it years and years ago. I was probably like a 15, 16 year old, and I rinsed it. Absolutely loved it. Mm. annoyed the shit out of probably everybody that followed me and now you're back and um, now i'm back it's all history all the time yeah so uh your posts on instagram have been sexed up haven't they <laughs> they have there there is I. there's graphics and everything going on there it's, it's all like very... a whole like light show now yeah it's, it's Gone you, pro. you need to put a bloody warning on there for people who suffer from epilepsy um, yeah, my mum my hates it she she says she can't deal with that. For context, <laughs> my mum's epileptic. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. It, is she really? 
Yes, yes. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were making like a really bad joke then. I no, no, like... no, I'm making an accurate bad joke. Right, okay. Yes, <laughs> it, um, uh, what I like about your um, Instagram is it's always been very uniformed. Yes, I try to be. Mine is chaos, but then that represents me. <laughs> I'd say it's a pretty accurate representation of you, definitely. Yeah, yeah. a bit scatty. If um, I wasn't organised, I don't think I'd put any content out. I, I don't. I can't do it ad hoc. It has to be formatted properly. Mm, that's interesting because um, actually, most of the people that were on the last episode that we released, the debate club, are very much like yourself. They're very organised. It's very much planned. Whereas I'm just like, meh. Here's a like castle. I'm, I still write things down. Do, yeah, I sometimes do that in my notes if I like, want to get have a notebook. Like actually, a physical notebook. Mm. Do you? Yeah. Um, oh, to be fair, I yeah, I I mean, I've got a pencil in my hand as we speak, and I've been writing things as we go down. Every now and again, I hear a little. Yeah. I don't know if you can hear me rubbing on my pop shield, but yeah, just you jotting stuff down, I can hear you. Yeah. Can you really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's uh, that's that's me taking notes yeah. of what you've it's good. said. It means I've either said something good or wrong. See me at the end of the class. (laughs) Um, Christopher, what are we going to do our next topic on? I mean, I feel like... Eleanor of Aquitaine. (laughs) I I mean, I I have spoke about Eleanor of Aquitaine on this podcast, haven't I? A lot, yeah. Um, Do you know what? We We should put it to the... Put it to the people... So should we, we should give two options and uh, and do a vote. Mm. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Okay, so uh, you probably get more responses than I do, so we'll do it on your one. Okay. On your sexy new well, post. But, but if we just do it on mine, there's a lot of pro Eleanors that follow me. Yeah, but a if notorious we, If Eleanor we don't I... give Eleanor a option... Oh, no, no, I, I just think we both should do it. It should be shared equally, and then we. Oh, okay, and then we collaborate. We count up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so we'll do that. So, so the the listeners' choice is coming soon. Listeners' choice. Watch this space. That sounds like one of those magazines you get, and it tells you like what's going to happen in Coronation Street. <laughs> like the Radio Times. Yeah, like TV, TV Choice, whatever it's called, or like yeah, like rem- TV Remote. Have you Central ever what, Have you stuff. ever read them like real life magazines? No. Right, so they're the weirdest shit that goes on ever. So I was reading this magazine. It's like real life, and it's like, um, I don't know, woman marries kettle and stuff like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They're like really, really, really cheap lowbrow magazines. Yeah, that are like so I P that fall out of the sun. Yeah, so yeah. I read this uh, one article about this lady who uh, I think she was German. And uh, she travelled the, the the world as a as a kid because her dad used to work on the fairground rides, mm. and um, she fell in love with this horse on this merry-go-round, and like, well. uh, which is it, it's a real thing. People do fall in love with objects; it's a condition, um, so I'm told. Uh, and she fell in love with this 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 horse, but years and years later this merry-go-round was getting, like, decommissioned, right? So uh, she uh, she went and she married the horse um, in a non-official ceremony. Um, and then um, someone, like, swooped in and brought the merry-go-round. So they brought it back to life. So 
Uh, and then the interviewer asked her, she was like, do you mind other people writing your husband? <laughs> and then she was like, no, it's just part of the job. I have to share him. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? A, wrong with me, because I'm reading it. And yeah, B, I mean, you got through a full... You I know, did. It was a hundred word it page. It was a, it was a, no. It was a two page spread with photos. Double spread. Yeah. Hey, that's yeah. I mean, each to their own. Like, if anybody's listening to this, still, if anybody's listening to this and they are into an object, you go for it. I'm all all power to you. But hey, hmm. have have a minute. Have a have a word. Have a word, yeah. Have a word for yourself. So, you're, you're not telling me if I presented you with a life-size statue... Fusail and Rebecca. ...of Eleanor of Aquitaine. <laughs> okay, so, caveat on that, nobody knows what she looks like. So, yeah, but what does she look like I, in your mind? Uh, let's... I think that's a great end to a podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>